so let's go ahead and begin. This is April 9th, 2020. This is Deepening Your Practice, and tonight we're going to be talking about metta practice, and in particular, metta practice for self. But I thought that I would open it up at the beginning to see if there's any um, anything that anybody wants to share or talk about uh, that I can then include into the class tonight. Everybody's okay in uh, our shelter in place. Nathan? Oh, can I say something? Uh, or did I click something? No, uh, I thought you raised your hand, but if you didn't, that's okay. Oh, no, I'm just adjusting the camera. All right, I'm going to mute you. Everybody okay and settled? So meta practices, um, or meta is often translated as loving kindness practice, is meant to uh, overcome anger. So when we talk about these, this collection of practices, the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, loving kindness practice, um, compassion practice, sympathetic joy practice, and equanimity practice, in the Theravada model. Um, that's the order in the Tibetan model. The equanimity comes first, and then it's loving kindness, compassion, and joyfulness. Loving kindness is a sympathetic practice. Uh, sympathetic joy practice is sympathetic. Equanimity is a sympathetic practice, and compassion is an empathetic practice. So, with loving kindness practice, you're practicing it uh, for yourself. And the intention of the practice is to overcome anger. So that when you notice that the mind state of anger is arising, you want to move into the practice of loving kindness to replace the anger with a sense of kindness. In the traditional way of practicing, we are practicing for living people that we can radiate the, the metta out to or the loving kindness out to so that they'll receive it and then it'll be reflected back and there's this cycle of energy that's exchanged. Um, in metta jhana practice, uh, which is the, the, the way that I like to teach this, it's about mind states, understanding what mind states are and being able to have agency in causing particular mind states to arise and then be able to use them as a object of meditation. So then the question is, what is a mind state? Um, and a mind state is the, the condition of, of, of the mind in relationship to the experience of the present moment. Uh, the Buddha talks about an equanimous state of mind, which is, um, in some sense, an emptiness of mind state, and then different kinds of mind states that arise in response to the different kinds of experiences uh, that you encounter in the present moment. Um, when we talk about the process of which we come into awareness of what's happening, we have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed, and when they meet, a consciousness of that sensing experience arises. The, the body-mind first evaluates it for pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is vedno. I like to say for urgency, it needs attention, doesn't really matter, and pleasant if we have time to get to it. Um, 
it's then compared to the uh, perceptual database of previously experienced things. And if you find uh, in the database a close enough match to what's going on at the present moment, the present moment sensing experience becomes that experience. So we talk about it in ultimate reality, the sensing experience, and then conceptual reality, the thing that we make it into. And in this movement back and forth between ultimate or absolute reality and conceptual reality um, is where the mind state goes. It's like a filtering mechanism. If the mind is equanimous, then the translation between pure sensing and what we make the sensing experience into tends to produce a fairly reliable an accurate representation of that. But when there's a mind state between the ultimate sensing experience and the thing we make it into, the conceptual uh, reality, then the conceptual reality experience is distorted by the mind state. That making sense? And so what we want to begin to do is to be able to have agency in tracking what that mind state is and then if it's an afflictive mind state be able to replace it with a beneficial mind state. Almost all experience that we have is regulated through a thinking process and mind states are a large part of that so that if you notice the mind is inclining toward anger then you think of using the metta practice or the loving kindness practice as an, an, an antidote to that inclining intentionally the mind toward kindness so that then you're ex you're experience the kind mind um, in um, the the four uh, brahma viharas each of the different practices is meant to address a different mind state so that if you notice the mind inclining toward cruelty then you would uh, move toward uh, compassion practice or karuna practice if you notice that the mind was inclining toward envy or jealousy, you'd move to sympathetic joy practice or mudita practice. Um, and if you notice the mind is getting caught up in craving, aversion, or unconsciousness, you would move toward equanimity practice. In order to be able to understand which practice to use in which moment, you have to have this agency in tracking the mind state. In teaching metta jhana, uh, or jhana practices it in relationship to the Brahma Viharas because you can do it with any of the, the uh, uh, mind states is being able to understand how you experience a mind state. So when I initially did this practice, the easiest mind state for me to detect was anger. I, I could tell pretty easily when my mind was inclined toward anger and then I could begin to explore how did I know that I was angry in the moment. And then in understanding the process, investigating how I was angry in the moment, I could see the, the, the place holding for the mind state and then begin to work with the other mind state. So if the mind is inclined toward anger or joy or sadness or fear or lust or any of the different mind states that are available, you can do that. The Buddha described uh, five basic mind states, I think. The first is uh, an equanimous mind, and he used the metaphor of a bowl of water as a mirror. And I think that this is a useful metaphor because we don't really experience anything directly. All of our direct experience is unconscious. 
it's in this conceptual reality, this conscious experience that we know self and world. And it's really by uh, observing this conceptual reality that we create that gives us the possibility of understanding the unconscious aspect or the, the, uh, just the, the activity of us how we are able to understand our conditioning and how it affects in, uh, our behavior is by being able to, to watch conceptual reality and to, to understand the nature of it. Is it a, an accurate, clear representation? So the Buddha used the metaphor of a mirror because the sensing experience is reflected off the surface of the water and 2,600 years ago, a mirror was a dark glazed bowl filled with water. If the image that's reflected off the surface of it is, uh, if the mind is equanimous, then the image that's reflected off the surface is accurate. And we can rely on it. Uh, he said that if the mind were filled with lust, it's as if the water were dyed a bright color. And so when the image is reflected off the surface of the water, it's infused with these bright colors. If you don't track the mind state, it infuses the, uh, the conceptual reality that we create. And in that distortion, we can make an intention and take an action and create a karmic thread that may or may not be skillful because of the distortion that we haven't been able to detect in the way that we've created conceptual reality. Um, if you are able to detect the distortion in conceptual reality, then you can correct in making the intention so that the action you take remains skillful. Often that's by remembering what kind of action you would take if the, uh, if the understanding of the present moment wasn't distorted. And um, then take the action. We talk about karma being created by intention and action. Action being an important piece, but also intention. One of the things about the nature of karma is that the outcomes of our actions, uh, the possibilities are so varied and, and complex that it's impossible really to know what will happen when we take an action and as the the actions that we take accumulate it's very hard to predict what what those um, outcomes are so we make the intention to take a skillful action and then we take the action and then we see what happens but only if we can see that reflected back to us clearly to understand what's happened the reason that i like to practice um, metta or any of the Brahma Viharas in this focus on mind state is because it trains us to monitor the mind state that's present in a given moment. And then we develop the capacity for agency in, in, in changing unskillful mind states into skillful mind states. So in the beginning of practicing metta in this way, we focus on understanding what a mind state is and how to detect it and then we intentionally generate a specific mind state and hold that as the object of meditation. Uh, we did practice for an easy person. And a so-called easy person is a person because when you think of them, the mind naturally inclines toward kindness. And you can just hold 
that experience of kindness um, because in the working model of the person, that's the minds that you tend to view them through. We all create in ourselves, and this is based on our conditioning, uh, working models of ourselves and working models of other people. And in the, those working models, we have uh, mind states that we typically view somebody through. We have people that, uh, we have the relationship to ourselves, which has the mind states that we uh, use to refer to ourselves. And then we have the people in our lives that we relate to routinely. We have the people that are closest to us, and those tend to be the most complex models with the most varied, varied mind states in it. And then as uh, people become less and less close to us, the relationships become simpler and the, the um, working models of the people become simpler. And so when we work with an easy person, we work with them because we're naturally inclined toward kindness toward them and there isn't that much else there. And so when we think of them, the mind inclines toward kindness. Even though a kind mind state is distorting, it's distorting in what we consider to be a beneficial way, whereas, say, anger would be distorting in, in a way that's considered afflictive. In some sense, in, in Buddhism, all emotions are uh, neutral, and it is, in fact, the relationship to them. Um, oops, it's saying that I need to plug in. There we go, hopefully. Um, is that all making sense? The near enemy of metta practice is sentimentality. And so one of the things about um, practicing uh, metta in, in a way that you intentionally cause the arising of a positive feeling state is that you can get caught up in the generation of the feeling state and lose awareness of the present moment. Um, if you get pulled out of the present moment, you get pulled into the stream of thinking and you lose awareness of what's actually happening. And so practicing in a way where the object of meditation is the primary object, um, you are reinforcing present moment awareness. So the beginning is this exploration of what is a mind state. And the second part is developing the agency to generate a particular mind state. Once you're able to do that fairly reliably, then the, the uh, ad advanced or the deeper practice is exploring how holding a particular mind state distorts or changes the perception of conceptual reality. Um, <clears throat> This is an extraordinarily useful skill to have because you can see uh, in real time how those emotions uh, or those mind states um, can affect the way that you cr construct the experience of things. The question I always like to ask is, have you ever constructed conceptual reality in a way that was not a good match for what was actually happening? And have you ever taken an action based on misunderstanding what's happening and created karma that then was difficult that you had to then 
step back from or then uh, create some kind of repair? Or was it such a, a profound misunderstanding that you actually created uh, a, a disruption or a rupture in a relationship? Is that making sense? So this practice is really about sensitizing yourself and developing the capacity to monitor mind states and then to have agency in which mind state you want to put in and then to train yourself to do this automatically enough that you can just do it on the fly without having to put a lot of effort into it. And the way that really develops is by practicing um, and, and developing this agency. So in, in metta or loving kindness, um, kind, the kind mind or metta mind is the, is the main practice. The near enemy of that is sentimentality where you're, you're generating a positive feeling state, but it's being generated based on a, a narrative that you're telling yourself and that that pulls you out of the experience of the present moment and the far enemy is anger. Metta is always used as a as a practice for uh, uh, um, resolving anger or eliminating anger from consciousness. Of all of the different emotional states, um, and I suppose that there is some controversy about anger. Uh, whether or not there can ever be an, a, a beneficial expression of anger. And I would look at this um, from a neuroscience perspective. The brainstem generates the first wave of anger, and then the frontal cortexes amplify that in a second wave of anger. There isn't that much that you can do about the first wave of anger because it precedes consciousness. And then in the second wave of anger, of course, that's being driven by a, a thought. And you do have agency in that. Often the, res the anger response is so immediate that we're already in, in the action by the time we recognize that we're engaging in uh, an action that's being driven by the intention of anger. I tend to be on the side of uh, the fence that all anger is afflictive and so that we need to begin to uh, really have a sensitivity to the, that arising and being very skillful at catching it uh, at the intention and before it turns into action. But, and you can eliminate the process of anger generating thoughts in uh, consciousness um, Anybody here use anger as a, a way of self-soothing or self-regulating? I mean, there is there something more delicious than self-righteous anger in terms of the soothing feeling that uh, is driven by it? Um, revenge, uh, violent revenge. Uh, if you look at our culture, of course, uh, there's a whole industry in generating violent imagery extreme violent imagery as a form of entertainment. Um, and so we're very well trained at doing this from a young age. Can you uh, give a ballpark count if you engage in, in 
the the media in our society how many murders you've experienced on tv or in the the movie theater tens of thousands how many it's a it's an amazing devotion in our culture to the expression of anger so most of us are very well trained at this we can we can do that easily and so we want to begin to monitor it um, inclining ourselves toward kindness as a habit in the same way that the mind easily inclines toward anger as a habit Dan Brown, who is one of my teachers, when I asked him what his goal for practice was, he said that it was rainbow body. So I don't know if you know Tibetan practice much. But rainbow body comes from not having a negative thought for between 13 and 30 years, not a single negative thought. And when that happens, the body dissolves into white light. And what's left behind are the clothes and hair and fingernails. For some reason, they don't dissolve. Um, I know that in, in the West, where we're devoted to science, these kinds of uh, descriptions <laughs> often don't make sense. But can you track your own thought process well enough? And do you have enough agency to restrict the mind from engaging in any angry thoughts? Can you give up your angry thoughts because you're willing to give up the pleasure that comes from having the angry thought? Or uh, are you uh, so conditioned and uh, enjoy so much the, the sense of satisfaction that comes, the sense of delight that comes in in generating the angry thoughts that that it's very difficult to keep the mind from doing that. So in these investigations of attempting to generate these particular thought patterns, you can begin to see where these attachments are, these cravings for that sort of sense pleasure of anger or uh, the, the, the sense of um, aversion to the experiences that the anger masks, often we use anger as a regulating tool so that if, for instance, fear of sadness arises and that's unbearable to us, we switch instead to generating anger because we can tolerate the experience of anger better than we can allow ourselves the experience of sadness or helplessness or fearfulness or whatever it is that's arising. And so one of the, the insight fruits that can come from practicing metta is that you can see how the mind is inclined to stay with the, the generating of kindness or pulling out of doing it. Um, and then particularly the, the peace around the, that pleasantness that comes from, from anger. What may also begin to become apparent is that <coughs> different family systems use different thought processes to emotionally regulate, and you can begin to explore the conditioning that you received uh, uh, in the that early conditioning crucible of the family system, where many of these strategies for emotional regulation ar arose in the first place. Um, you will have learned from your primary caregiver 
the main ways that you emotionally regulate yourself and you will have carried them forward in your life. Really the only time we learn additional skills to the ones that we grew up on is when we, we form uh, very close intimate relationships with other people and we uh, in that process can see uh, clearly and regularly enough the strategies that they use so that we may be willing to take on some of those. But otherwise, we mainly are using the, the strategies that we've used uh, since the beginning and we've honed so well. And that that's often an experience that you have in doing the metta practice is that you find that trying to shift the body-mind out of using the, the habit of uh, the way that you regulate is difficult because it doesn't work as well. If you use anger as a way of regulating your emotions, you've honed that. And a few words into the narratives that you use to generate anger um, fill the body with anger. And <coughs> the experience of the present moment that you have been trying to uh, change or regulate by thinking um, is regulated. Whereas when you bring in the metta practice and you attempt to use that instead, uh, even though it is less uh, afflictive, it may not work as well in the beginning. And so the mind tosses it out and comes back to the experience that it's habitually used. And then you have to be resilient and over and over again, pushing out the afflictive strategy and pulling in the beneficial strategy. So part of this practice of being able to train the mind to move in the direction of metta practice is to be able to see clearly the the conditioning that uh, you received around emotional regulation and then beginning to uh, determine whether the, they're skillful or unskillful and then reinforcing the skillful ones and, and uh, suppressing the unskillful ones. Sometimes in Western psychology, the word suppression is, um, has a, a negative connotation. But in Buddhism, the Buddha described uh, suppression as a skillful means of preventing the mind from thinking unskillful thoughts and encouraging the mind to think skillful thoughts. Another aspect of this that's important to understand is that we're developing mentalizing skills in doing this. In the beginning of spiritual development, uh, in a state of complete ignorance or delusion, we don't recognize that we have a mind state and that other people have a mind state and that they're different. Uh, if you're unable to see or track mind states, you'll think that your perception of everything is uh, an accurate perception and you won't be able to track the uh, distortions. Or uh, you'll think that your perception of everything is how it is and that everybody's having the same perception as you are. And so that everybody is informed in terms of the decisions that they're making based on a, a, a perception of what's happening that's the same. And so in this process of investigating the nature of the mind, we see that we have a mind state. We have an interpretation of what's happening in the present moment, which is based on our individual conditioning experience and that everyone else has that. So we move away from this, assuming that everybody's having the experience that we're having 
and understanding that we have an experience that's unique to our conditioning and that other people have an experience that is um, <clears throat> unique to their conditioning. <clears throat> this is very important because it opens up this possibility for kindness in understanding that our conditioned response and somebody else's conditioned response um, come from this conditioning, often very early conditioning, which we had no control over and is still operating in us. And so we can open to this place of kindness to receive that uh, from them uh, and open to kindness in receiving that for ourselves. Um, when we talk about attachment conditioning, as uh, you probably all know, is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, when you are 10 months old, you already have a fully functioning attachment uh, process that we can actually test and understand how you're doing it and that you have a 70% chance of using the same strategy that you had at 10 months for the rest of your life. And so to begin to really investigate into and see into the nature of this early conditioning that creates these distortions in conceptual reality really creates this possibility of seeing clearly into the nature of that conditioning and then to begin to remove the afflictive aspects of it so that you have a better chance at being in the experience of the present moment closer to the way that the present moment is. In each moment, Uh, what is, um, as each moment ends, what opens up in the next moment are all of the potentialities. <coughs> um, and as soon as you choose one, of course, the uh, all of the potentialities, except for the one that you chose, fall away, and, and, and you're committed to this path. Um, and, and this process unfolds moment after moment. But if these very distorting views are present and you can't track them, then uh, much of what is potential, much of the potentialities out there aren't even visible to you and you don't know them. And because this conditioned response comes on so early, you know, preceding uh, conscious awareness by years, you, you just, come into the experience of conscious awareness with a lot of these restrictions already in place. And so this is a process of trying to figure that out and track it uh, and then have agency in um, what you're going to do in response to that. So in this process of spiritual development, the first aspect is the seeing clearly these two aspects. You have a, a mind state and conditioning and other people have a mind state and conditioning. And then um, what this metta practice is so good at is the second stage, which is that you have agency in, in uh, affecting the way that the, the mind state arises, um, tracking this 
mind state, evaluating whether it's beneficial or not, and then have agency in changing it. Um, the third stage, of course, is where you notice that your uh, mind state has an impact on other people and that their mind state has an impact on you. And this is the, the beginning of developing the capacity for empathy, which is the compassion practice. But in the beginning, in order to do that effectively, we need to to really have that experience in the present moment of our own mind state and then agency in changing it. Because this is a concentration practice and a jhana practice, we're going through these five stages of concentration development around the object of meditation. The first is to place your attention on the object of meditation, which means you need to be able to cause the arising of the mind state of loving kindness and make that the object of meditation. Sustaining awareness is the second. Once you can do that and the mind engages the object of meditation, it becomes the dominant experience in consciousness and everything drifts into the background. And as the mind settles in on the object of meditation, it energizes and there's a physical sensation that you can detect, which is called PT, which tends to be located sort of inside the head toward the front when you, when you uh, settle into the mind state. The mind state itself, um, in my own experience of working with it, is perceptual rather than uh, a physical sensation. But once you become concentrated enough, a physical sensation arises that you can track. It makes it easier, uh, in some sense, to shift from the experience of the mind state into the experience of the energy of holding the concentration. And then that generates a, a sense of bliss that arises in the body. And then uh, the mind settles into a one-pointed awareness. And when that happens, you've entered into the first metta jhana. When you're practicing with metta as the object of meditation, the mind is always inclined toward kindness. And so there's a limit to how deep in, in terms of your jhana practice that you can go using metta as the object. And there is controversy in the med meditation world about how deep into jhana you need to go anyway in order to do the insight side of practice. Um, the Tibetans in particular are adamant about access concentration being all that's necessary and some uh, uh, people practicing on the, the Theravada side see it as a as a, a skillful means that you can you can jump off at any time into uh, vipassana or insight practice. First jhana, there's efforting. You have to constantly come back and place your attention there. So you may notice that everything is settling in and you're in that high concentrated state in kind mind or metta mind and then you pop out. Um, so first jhana is very unstable. And then when you enter into second jhana, it stabilizes and you'll notice that for long periods of time, your attention is just on the object of kindness. Um, but the energetic quality is there. And then when you drop into third jhana, 
the energetic quality of it uh, leaves and it's just a concentrated blissful state so one-pointedness and bliss this can be very seductive to get into that third stage where it's just this intensely blissful experience um, and so you you don't want to then end up in a situation where you're craving the the pleasantness of that and abandon your other practices you want to be able to stay uh, um, with developing the, these the capacity for high concentration states around the particular mindset that you're focusing on and not get seduced by the pleasantness of it and abandon uh, other inquiry in vipassana jhana practice the fourth jhana is where the blissful quality is replaced by equanimity but equanimity is this completely neutral place and in order to get there the mind can no longer be inclined toward kindness and so uh, if you were to find that the mind slips into a totally equanimous space of high concentration then you've come out of uh, metta jhana and you've gone into vipassana jhana and so in, in practicing th in this way uh, often that that happens you end up slipping out of metta into vipassana jhana fourth uh, fourth vipassana jhana anyway that's a kind of overview of how to uh, practice and why to practice in this way we call it a dry metta practice because we're not attempting to generate a positive feeling state we're attempting to generate a mind state and use it as an object of meditation in wet metta practice which is also taught quite a bit uh, the purpose of that is to intentionally generate a positive feeling state we call that wet metta because it uh, the purpose of it is not to, to generate uh, concentration but to generate a positive feeling state uh, and the reason that I have a bias uh, toward teaching the high concentration state is because the uh, it's too easy to slip into sentimentality for me when I practice wet metta and get caught up in the in the narrative that's generating the 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 positive feeling state rather than um, staying in the mind state itself. So uh, we'll we'll begin and do a period of practice. Does anybody have any questions before we do that? Is the dry meta conversation too dry? I think that it um, <clears throat> it's very it's much easier to get into a positive feeling state generating a narrative than it is to get into a high concentration state um, and a lot of the practice that's in the West is taught as a stress reduction practice and so 
uh, often uh, the experience of practicing metta is easy to get into and it tends to be stress reducing. Um, it does also uh, tend to to not generate the 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 skill set and the lasting benefit of the dry metta practice. Um, but it takes a concerted effort to to practice in the way that I've just described. Um, and uh, in the West, um, most practices is. Um, simple and light in, in comparison to the, the amount of effort that these other practices take. Um, so I think that that's probably the reason for it. Um, the particular meditation that I'm teaching is a Mahasi practice. So Mahasi is the noting practice and not all uh, Western Theravada practices noting practice. And Mahasi taught uh, for some students uh, what he called metta vipassana practice. So it's a kind of integrated practice. So the, the practice I'm also describing to you is metta vipassana practice, where the metta side and the vipassana side are well integrated, and you're getting adv advantages and supports for both sides of the practice in that way. And in the West, by and large, vipassana practice is what's taught. And metta is an adjunct to that that's often added, added later. Um, the, um, I prefer the metta jhana practice um, because uh, what can happen in vipassana practice if you don't have the metta practice developed is that when you, you begin to examine the way that the body-mind operates, uh, a lot of us hold very afflictive states in regard to ourselves. And uh, the Vipassana practice can heighten the intensity of those. And if you don't have a way of addressing them, um, a lot of people experience um, distress in doing the Vipassana practice. And mainly what pe happens is that people stop practicing because they don't have a, a place to go to um, uh, to get out of the uh, uh, distress that uh, Vipassana can cause by, not, it's not causing um, afflictive states necessarily, but it's interrupting the capacity to deny that that's what's happening to you, and so you have a heightened experience of it. In um, metta Vipana, Vipassana practices, you develop the capacity to incline the mind toward kindness so that when you go in and examine uh, what your actual conditioning is, and you find that you, you, you have afflictive states arise, you have agency in actually moving out of the afflictive states that you, you don't necessarily have uh, if you're doing a, a straight Vipassana practice. And so what often happens is a, a, a limiting or a slowing of, the, of the, the depth that you can get into with the Vipassana practice is a way of regulating that. And um, with the metta vipassana practice, it's unnecessary to stop meditating to get, come out of the afflictive state. You can withdraw into the metta state uh, and and hold the experience until the body mind settles, and then move back into the vipassana side. Also, having them divided, sometimes people withdraw from the vipassana side and go into the metta side, and then they never go back into the vipassana side. So the 
the insight um, and the, the, the depth of practice that comes from doing insight practice doesn't develop. In the end, the goal of all of this practice is liberation in the classical sense. Um, but along the way, if there are impediments to being able to practice in such a way that you can have the, uh, the enlightenment-oriented insights, then you need to be able to do that part first in order to open up consciousness enough uh, to come into that. One of the um, complaints um, of Vipassana practice or even Metta Vipassana practice is that um, it, it does tend to put you into uh, a direct experience of the conditioning that you had. And if it was an afflictive experience early on, it heightens the distress of that. Um, and, you know, the, the map of Vipassana includes dissolution experiences um, and our, there's a, an intense focus in Vipassana practice on self and no self experiences, which also some people find distressing, but uh, and, and in the Tibetan practices that's different. Um, so it isn't that this the, this map or this way of practicing is the only way of practicing, uh, but it, it is very appealing to some some people, and uh, and I know for me that this was the 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 central organizing practice that really was able I was able to to um, use in a way that made life much better. So. Um, what I would do really in, in terms of practice is look for the experiences that are useful to you and incorporate those practices, um, <coughs> understanding that uh, if enlightenment or those kinds of uh, uh, ideas interest you, that you need to practice in a way that's uh, organized for that. Otherwise, um, when I first started practicing with Shinzen, um, he said, you want to practice in such a way as that you drop straight down to the goal um, but and not get pulled sideways because you can go indefinitely in a, in a side direction exploring some aspect of it and never make any progress toward what the long goal is. So... Um, the reason that I teach this in the way that I do is because I, at the end for me, uh, the goal is enlightenment and, and, and I'm wanting everybody to practice in such a way that they can get there and at the same time recognize that as these impediments come along the way that they need to be addressed in a skillful way so that you can keep going. Is that a good enough answer? All right, so let's do a period of practice and then uh, we can uh, do some questions at the end.
So we're doing a metta practice, so there's no need to hold the posture still. You want to be in a relaxed and comfortable position. It's okay to move, but it's still a formal period of practice, so you don't want to allow yourself to get pulled away into thinking. You want to be able to stay with the objects of meditation. Always a good idea to do a quick inventory of the body's part of the settling in process. So starting at the top of the head, relax the scalp, the brow, the eyes, the face. Let the jaw go slack, relaxing the tongue. Straighten the spine, balancing the head. Relax the shoulders. Just let the arms hang down, arranging the hands comfortably. Arrange the legs comfortably. Just let the breath go in and out as it will. No effort to control it. And just take a moment to expand and contract with the breath. So we're going to do metta practice for self. So we make the intention to radiate the loving kindness to ourselves. Some people are highly organized around visual thinking. If that's the case for you, it may be useful to hold a visual image of yourself in some aspect. Could be the outline of the body in the current position, could be the body's location, the current environment. You could hold a mental image of yourself. The reason to do that is so that uh, visual thinking doesn't distract you from the meditation. It does, however, divide the object of meditation, making it harder to come into a high concentration state. So you'll have to decide what, which is uh, more useful not dividing the object and risking visual thinking distracting you or holding visual thinking and um, having to concentrate in a at a higher level in order to reach the jhana state. We're not attempting to generate any particular feeling state in the body. Whatever arises there is fine. We're making the sole object of meditation or as much of our attention as we can place on the mind state itself. So how do you know that the mind is inclined toward loving kindness? How do you know the mind is inclined toward any mind state? And then can you cause the arising of the mind state of loving kindness? If necessary, begin the practice with the easy person that in just thinking of them brings along the mind state of love and kindness and then switch to practicing for yourself. And you can switch back and forth as many times as you need to. In each moment of practice, we remember it and in remembering it, infuse the working model of ourselves with uh, kindness. So when we're out and about in the world and there's a moment of self-consciousness arising, in that working model is an increase of the tendency to treat yourself kindly. So the more practice you do, the stronger that tendency is. 
so that then when you're just out and about in the world and something happens and a sense of self arises, a sense of a kind relationship to self arises. This is mainly the reason that we're practicing so that in each moment that the self arises, it's infused with this sense of kindness. And so we react in each moment of self-arising with the experience of kindness, which is pleasant. What can happen when the self arises is if we are, our tendency is to hold it with anger or bitterness or some other afflictive, afflictive state. When the sense of self arises, the afflictive sense arises with it. And then we can take on this experience of disliking the arising of the sense of our own self, hating that, se that source of self-hatred is the sense of the self arising and an afflictive mind state coming with it. And so we develop an aversion to this afflictive mind state which we associate with the self. So we do want to be careful in practicing in this way that we are infusing uh, the working model of self with this kind state. So that's the object of meditation we place and sustain our awareness of it. And then continuously generate phrases as a constant reminder of the practice that we're undertaking. A simple phrase is usually the best so it doesn't further divide the object of meditation and you need to use uh, too much uh, thinking power to generate the phrase. So something basic and simple. The phrase that I like is, uh, may I be peaceful. You can use whatever phrase you want and it's important that you're able to intend the meaning of the phrase. Um, but try out, may I be peaceful and see if that doesn't produce this state. Meta, meta mind is cool, so there's an absence of the heat of anger, an absence of the heat of desire. It's calm. It's not particularly intense. The bliss reaction that happens is, can be quite intense, but this is different than meta mind itself. So making meta mind the object of meditation, continuously repeating your phrases. May I be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I be peaceful. May I be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I be peaceful. May I be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I be peaceful. May I be peaceful, may I be peaceful, may I be peaceful.
So sustaining awareness of the object of meditation, if you find that you get pulled into thinking at any point, you want to reset from the beginning. Uh, so making the intention is the first part. So making the intention to radiate the loving kindness to yourself or to the easy person. Resetting visual thinking if you need to. Doesn't matter what the feeling state in the body is, the emotional state is. We're focusing on the mind state. Most of the time people experience mind state as part of the thinking process. So visual and auditory thinking. So someplace inside the head. Placing your attention there. Noticing when the mind is inclined toward kindness, making that the object of meditation. And then repeating the phrase, which is a way of filling auditory thinking space so auditory thoughts don't grab your attention. <coughs> In practicing and developing high concentration states, particularly when you get into the first metta jhana, it's very unstable and so you pop out quite a bit. And sometimes when you pop out, it's a little disorienting. You're in an altered state. And so the, the recitation of the phrase reminds you of what you're doing so that you can then reset and come back into the meditation.
So pay attention for to see if there's a pleasantness that arises in the body. And enjoy that pleasantness as it arises in the body. This is an aspect of sukha or bliss. Bliss we often think of as a and in, at least in the use of the English word, an intense experience, but this can be quite subtle. A calmness overtaking the body, which has a pleasant quality to it.
So a kind, friendly, open-hearted, easy curiosity about yourself, all aspects of yourself coming and going in the experience of the present moment. A really easy, open-hearted curiosity about the experience of your beingness.
So any comments or questions about the practice that we just did? Questions about something else? John. <laughs> Good. Um, just, um, just for the question that Nathan asked, um, and your answer really resonated with me, followed by the meditation. And so, just for reiteration's sake, for myself, it's you. You suggest that to uh, to have better experiences with this banana meditation it's suggested to do this type of meditation um, more so, like, um, like, to, like to be, how do I say, more of an expert with this kind of meditation before entering into Visvanada. And I say that simply because um, Visvanada is always a very, 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 very overwhelming experience for me whenever I do it. Mm -hmm. So in metavipassana practice, you want to develop the metta side so that you have a refuge that you can retreat to if the vipassana side heats up too much. Um, there's never the understanding that you're going to reside only in metta practice and never go into vipassana practice. But if you have the capacity to concentrate on a kind mind, in relationship to yourself and you can really get into that state it becomes very blissful and settling and then from that concentrated um, positive state you can go into the vipassana side if the i say when i say vipassana heats up too much um, if it gets too distressing which can happen sometimes in vipassana then you can just withdraw into the metta the safety of the metta and settle and then go back. Um, you do have to be able to do the metta practice well enough that it actually can be a refuge because if you don't, the the distress from the vipassana side can be overwhelming. If you have, uh, and one way to do to <coughs> evaluate this is to evaluate what the constant flow of chatter is in relationship to yourself or to other people, and is it constantly angry? Is it constantly uh, negative uh, in that way. Uh, and so I would suggest if that's the case, then at least half of the practice be metta until you really train the mind into to holding the, the experience of self and other people predominantly uh, kindly. Um, or that you develop enough of a concentration uh, in the, the metta mind that, that if no matter what happens in the vipassana side, you have this place that you can retreat to. And in some sense, what that does is open up the vipassana side because if you're concerned that the vipassana side is going to become overwhelming, you'll begin to limit your exploration there so that it isn't. And then that could very well limit the insight that you have. Whereas if you have this place where you know you can go to that's dependable, in holding the, the experience, then you can be quite fearless in your Vipassana practice. Gotcha. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I know 
So one of the things that we want to, um, we're all householders, right? And so we can't practice in such a way that the practice uh, makes it impossible for us to function as householders, which can happen, right? So there's always this balance. You want to go in uh, as deeply as you need to in the Vipassana side, but you don't want to practice in such a way that it it has a negative impact on the way that you can function in your daily life. It really is meant to be something that supports that. And so that balance, that, that's really the main reason I like the metta vipassana balance. Because um, if the vipassana side hits, heats up too much, you can come into the metta side and continue to practice uh, and rebalance and, and support that. Also, um, in terms of formal practice, that's one aspect. The other practice, of course, is practice in life. You want to develop the, train the mind such that it's it's constantly meditating. Um, but when you're interacting with other people, uh, if you the mind goes into a, a vipassana exploration, often other people experience you as being disconnected from them. Whereas if you're engaged in a metta practice while you're engaging with other people, they tend to to experience uh, you as uh, kind and friendly, which is a whole different experience than reserved and withdrawn into a Vipassana practice. Good. Someone else? We're just about out of time. All right, so thank you everybody for coming tonight. Um, I am teaching this class on a dana basis. Um, dana is a Pali word that means generosity. And so um, if you're inclined toward co contributing to the support of Metagroup and me in, in teaching this, you can go to the Metagroup web website and there's a link um, on the, uh, the, the announcement of this class that uh, will allow you to make a donation to us. And that's very much appreciated. Next week, um, we're going to do Vipassana practice, and I'm going to be talking about the aspect of mind, uh, which is, uh, we were talking earlier about the 16 stages, which is the second stage of uh, insight practice. Um, mind is the capacity, mind is where your attention goes, and what it focuses on, and then the collection of mind moments that are then used to create conceptual reality from the sensing experience. And it's something that's useful to track uh, because you can begin to see how uh, you select your experience of um, what what's actually happening in the room, really get into understanding what your uh, hierarchy of preferences is. And, uh, and see how that informs what you make of uh, self and world. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Thanks. Thank you.